Everybody dies, don't they? The Black Widow by John S. Glazeby. Philip Ransom put his foot down on the accelerator and the car rounded a corner with a shriek of rubber compressed to the utmost by the sudden turn. The long vista of forested slopes ahead suddenly reminded him strongly of a journey he'd made once before when he had driven into a dark forest. But although the memory was so strong, he couldn't remember where or when it had been. Certainly it was not here, for this was the first time that he had visited the south of France. Beside him, Anne sat easily in the passenger seat, her gaze fixed on the dim road ahead with a curious lack of emotion. Philip, she said finally, are you sure we did the right thing, renting this villa without even seeing it? Philip squeezed her waist and then let go as the road abruptly narrowed, twisting and turning in a series of hairpin bends. Why, you think there may be something wrong with it? I, I don't know. But after all, we got it for next to nothing. One doesn't usually have that kind of luck. I suppose that's what's so worrying. Anne gave him a resigned glance which made him smile uncertainly. There must be something wrong. No one would rent it out for such an absurdly low price if it's everything they claim it to be. Philip switched on the headlights as the trees shut out the overcast autumn sky. It wasn't like driving at night, because he knew that the sky was still light somewhere above the thickly tangled branches. We've been through all this before, Anne, he said finally. We'd be fools to turn down an offer like this. Anne leaned back, eyes closed. It isn't just the price. I've got a strange feeling about this place, that's all. But we haven't seen it yet, Philip insisted. I don't have to see it, Anne countered illogically. Another of your premonitions. Call it that if you like. Her tone implied that she didn't want to discuss it any further. Philip peered ahead, watching the road intently. They were now moving along the steep downgrade, and it was so dark that he could only see clearly to the limit of the headlights. The twisted branches leaned over the road to form an impenetrable arch. Here and there were dips in the road, and he had the odd feeling that the gloom was striving to drag them down whenever they passed over one. In spite of his desire to be out in the open again, he was forced to drive slowly in third gear. Then, just as he rounded a bend, he slammed his foot hard on the brake. Anne was hurled forward before the belt jerked her back into the padded seat. What the hell? Philip stared incredulously through the windscreen. The twin beams picked out the figure standing in the middle of the road, perhaps thirty yards away, thrusting forward a white face that stared at them from beneath the hood of a black cloak. The engine had stalled, and there was only the muted whir of the interior air conditioning in the silence. What is it? Anne asked in a hoarse whisper that seemed stuck in her throat. Philip sucked in his breath in a long, heaving gasp. There was a chill dampness on his forehead, and his fingers were trembling on the wheel. It's a woman. He got the words out with an effort. But what's she doing out here, miles from anywhere? Damn fool, she could get herself killed. He opened the door to get out, and for an instant his glance left the black figure. Straightening, he looked back. The road was empty. He had a moment of panic as he continued to stare. Then he turned his head towards Anne. She, too, was peering into the gloom, a horrified expression on her face. Did you see where she went? he asked. Anne shook her head numbly. She just vanished. Into the trees, you mean? Philip could feel his heart jumping against his ribs. No, I'd have seen her if she had. One second she was there, and the next she was gone. Philip strained his eyes to peer into the gloomy array of tree trunks on either side. All of his senses were intensified. You think we imagined it? He willed himself to keep his voice down. The utter silence didn't help, and he knew that Anne was closer to panic than he was. There had been something uncanny about that menacing shape. Maybe. Anne's muted whisper reached him from inside the car. But it's gone now. Let's get the car started and get out of this place. He slipped in beside her, slammed the door shut, welcoming the loud noise. 
twisting the key in the ignition. He had to try the engine twice before it caught, and he could feel the fear rising within him as he willed the engine to keep turning. Engaging the gears, he drove forward, eyes flicking from side to side, expecting to see that ghostly figure in black emerge from the trees close at hand at any moment. A hundred yards further on, they passed between two large encroaching overhangs of rock which seemed intent on crushing them under their ponderous weight. Philip spun the wheel automatically as they came out into the open. Down below lay the small village straddling the narrow road. By now it was early evening, and most of the small windows gleamed with yellow lights. In places the road narrowed as they crossed swift rushing streams, so that they barely scraped between the low parapets of ancient stone. Passing through the village, the road began rising as more trees showed on the rocky slopes. It was now almost completely dark, but the moon, full and bright, allowed them to pick out the villa, perched high above the road. There was a screen of conifers fronting it, blocking their view a little, so they couldn't make out all the details. Two kilometres from the village, the headlights picked out the large metal gates on their right. Once through the gates, the drive curved, then curved again. There was a wide lawn sloping down from the villa, and Philip rolled down the window to get a better view as they approached. Anne found herself wishing everything wasn't quite so still. There didn't seem to be a breath of wind. She couldn't recall when she had last felt so deep a silence. It must have been the utter stillness which made her imagine she glimpsed movement among the trees on the far side of the grounds. Her premonitory fears were working on her, she told herself. Her yearning to fill the stillness and silence was making her think she saw someone walking among the shrubbery beyond the lawn. The villa was supposed to be empty. The agent had written to say that if they required any help during the day, they could engage someone from the village once they arrived. So there would be no one in the grounds, particularly at this time of night. It must be a bush bearing an oddly human shape, of course, and their own movement gave it the illusion of changing its position. She didn't want to mention it to Philip, not after that frightening encounter on the forest road. Philip was peering ahead, slowing the car as he drove around the neatly trimmed garden. He pulled up in front of the imposing entrance. Opening the door, he got out, breathing in the cool, crisp night air. Turning slowly, his brain seemed to fill up with the details of the villa. It looked more modern than he had expected. The photographs he'd seen had not done it justice. So often photographs painted a glowing picture which was not realised in reality. He knew he ought to be pleased at getting a place like this for three months, and for much less than he would have had to pay for a much smaller place in England. But for some reason he couldn't fathom there was a nagging little idea at the back of his mind that everything wasn't quite what it should be. Well, what do you think, Anne? It looks all right, she said, slowly, running her gaze over the building and grounds. Somehow it's different from what I imagined it would be like. Philip took the cases from the car while Anne opened the door. They went inside, closing the door behind them. In spite of the pleasant warm atmosphere inside the place, Philip felt a little flutter of panic in his mind as they walked down the hall into the front room. Instinctively he tried to throw off the feeling that they were being watched. He had a sudden flash of conviction that they were being scrutinised by eyes peering from the stairway. Unfriendly eyes. Some part of his mind, curiously detached from the rest, seemed to reach out ahead of him, beyond Anne, and up the wide stairway, to detect a presence there. Is there anything wrong, Philip? With an effort he pulled himself together and forced himself to meet Anne's worried gaze. Why, no. He put the cases down. You look so strange, almost— Anne broke off momentarily. Almost as if you were seeing something, or waiting for something. Y yes, that's it. Waiting for something. Nothing like that. Giving a shrug, he forced conviction into his tone. Just finding the place empty like this, I guess. He put an arm round her waist. We'll soon settle in and enjoy our holiday. Sometime during the night, Philip woke. 
He was instantly wide awake, his flesh tingling and his fingers gripping the coverlet in a convulsive grasp. White moonlight threw a maze of long shadows across the floor. Everything was absolutely still and silent, except for the quiet sound of Anne's breathing next to him. Whatever had woken him so suddenly had not disturbed her. He sat up slowly, tensed and rigid. His heart was palpitating wildly as if he had just woken from some frightful nightmare. But he was not a man prone to nightmares, and he instinctively sought for some external reason for his awakening. At that instant he picked out the stealthy sound, unmistakably that of footsteps moving cautiously up the stairs. The idea that there was someone else in the villa started a little germ of panic screaming in his mind. There had been several cases of foreign holidaymakers being murdered in France, and if there was a burglar out there, he and Anne didn't stand a chance. There was no weapon in the room he could use to defend himself. But he couldn't simply sit there and wait for some killer to burst into the bedroom. Somehow he galvanized himself into action. Swinging his legs to the floor, he edged towards the door. The sound of someone moving outside was unmistakable now. There were deliberate, measured steps, those of someone who knew where he wanted to go and obviously was familiar with the interior of the villa. Had the owner returned, not knowing they had already moved in? He tried to reassure himself with this possibility as he reached out and curled his fingers around the doorknob. The metal felt cold as ice to his touch. Drawing in a deep breath, he pulled the door open sharply and stared out into the corridor. Through the wide windows at the end, brilliant moonlight flooded along the landing. He could see the whole of the corridor on the long sweep of the stairs quite clearly. He could still hear the footsteps moving away, and somehow he forced himself forward, leaning over the ornate banisters along the landing. There was a flicker of movement at the bottom. He had the unmistakable impression of a tall figure, dressed in black, that glided across the room below. Her back was toward him, and he could see nothing of her features, but the sheer malevolence which shrouded the figure brought all of his fear back with a rush, together with instant recognition. He did not doubt it was the same figure they had encountered on the forest road. Philip realized he was holding his breath until the throbbing of blood in his throat threatened to choke him. He felt as if there was a cloud of darkness over him, pressing his head forward on his neck, forcing him forward over the banisters. Gasping hoarsely, he succeeded in taking small, shallow breaths. He was trembling violently, and it was only with a supreme effort of will that he managed to thrust himself backward and upright. Otherwise, he would surely have toppled into the room below. The figure had vanished, but the atmosphere of malignity, of something evil, remained. Somehow he stumbled back into bed, taking care not to wake Anne. He lay there, staring rigidly at the ceiling for more than an hour, before he fell into an uneasy sleep. When he woke the next morning, he had a splitting headache. Anne was already up, and he could hear the clatter of dishes in the dining room downstairs. Dressing quickly, he swallowed a couple of aspirins and tried to force the events of the night into the background of his mind. Splashing cold water onto his face, he rubbed himself dry, then went downstairs into the dining room at the rear. He told himself there had to be a logical explanation, but the only reassuring one was that he had imagined or dreamed it all. He didn't even want to consider the probability that the villa was haunted. Nor did he want to frighten Anne. She was the one who had these strange premonitions. He had always been the earthy, practical type. Perhaps if he got the opportunity, he would have a talk with one of the villagers. If there was anything strange about the villa, they would certainly know all of the details. Though whether they would be inclined to talk to a stranger was a different matter. The kitchen door opened and Anne came in with two plates heaped with bacon and eggs. She set them down on the table and threw him a swift glance. Didn't you sleep well, Philip? You look ghastly. 
Not too well, I'm afraid. Uh, he would have to be careful what he said. Being in a strange place, I guess. God, I slept like a log. Must have been the long drive. She sat down. Funny how different everything looks in the sunlight. Philip paused with his fork halfway to his mouth. Then you've got over your doubts about the place. Anne laughed. I'll admit it did look a little ghostly last night in the dark. But it looks beautiful now, and the agent has arranged everything for us, uh, plenty of food and drink and no trouble with the cooker. It's all so clean and tidy. He must have had someone from the village come in and get it all ready for us. I'll probably go down and have a word with him today. After breakfast, I want to explore the whole place. Then I thought we might take a walk into the village. Philip nodded in agreement. Already he was feeling a little better, more easy in his mind. If Anne no longer felt there was anything odd about the place, it might have been nothing more than a nightmare that he had imagined he had heard those footsteps and seen that black, gliding shape. Once the dishes had been washed and dried, they began their tour of the villa. It was soon obvious that it was much larger than either of them had imagined. Everything they saw indicated that the owner had to be extremely wealthy. Large crystal chandeliers hung from the ceilings, the furniture was of the best quality, with a number of antiques, which would have fetched several thousand pounds at an auction. Taking in all that he saw, Philip could not help wondering why such a place was let out to strangers, not because the owner needed the money, nor merely for the purpose of keeping the place aired and clean. He was sure there had to be another, deeper reason. As he went round with Anne, he found himself listening to every little sound the house made, Every nerve and fibre in his body stretched almost to breaking point. Relax, he told himself angrily as he followed his wife along a long, shadowy corridor. The idea that anything could be wrong here was ludicrous, utterly ridiculous. Quite suddenly, he stopped. Out of the shadowed wall directly in front of him, a shape appeared, and in the shape, two eyes. Standing there, it seemed as though the night and the darkness were looking at him through a pair of eyes. Involuntarily, he staggered back a couple of paces, bumping into Anne. Philip, what's the matter? Nothing, I... He found himself stammering, barely able to get the words out. His tongue seemed jammed against the roof of his mouth. It's just a picture, but it gave me quite a shock. Somehow, he felt afraid to look at the large, full-length portrait. Even before he made it out clearly, he knew who it was. Oh, my God! Anne reached out and gripped his arm, her fingers biting deeply into the flesh. That's the woman we saw in the road. Yes! Then uh, there's only one explanation. She must be the present owner. The agent said something in his last letter about her being a widow. He stood back a little, Anne still holding on to him. The woman in the portrait was seated at a table which he recognised as the one in the dining room along the corridor. She wore the same long black cloak he recalled from the previous day, the hood partly thrown back to reveal her face. There was, he realised, little remarkable about her features, apart from the eyes. Philip saw that they were fixed on him with a stare of calculated, sardonic amusement, as though daring him to look away and break the hypnotic spell they held for him. For some reason he couldn't understand, his legs were shaking. There was an aura of evil malignancy surrounding the seated figure, which almost overpowered him. It was like a dark, nebulous shadow, which seemed to emanate from the portrait reaching out with cold, clammy tendrils, touching his skin and speeding up his heartbeat into an abnormally jerky rhythm. Biting his lower lip, he pulled his gaze away, took Anne's arm and led her along the corridor. He hoped he had managed to convince her about the identity of the woman, that her own common sense would tell her the owner now probably lived somewhere in the village and there was nothing supernatural about seeing her on that forest road. Later that morning, they walked down the winding road into the village. The steep slopes glowed several different shades of grey and brown beneath the cloudless sky, and the sun was hot on their shoulders. 
Overalled workers, the women with brightly coloured handkerchiefs around their heads, were working in the vineyards, and several waved friendly greetings to them. While Anne went on a tour of the quaint little village, Philip sought out Monsieur Reynaud, the agent, checking the address on the last letter he had received before they left England. He found a small chalet on the very outskirts of the village, a neatly tended garden bordering the cobbled street. Going up to the door, he pushed the bell with his forefinger. There was a faint chime inside the house, followed by the push of footsteps on the carpeted floor. The door opened. Monsieur Renaud? Oui? The man eyed him inquisitorially. I'm Philip Ransom. Uh, My wife and I rented the Villa Cuvier for the autumn. Oh, but of course, forgive me. I should have realized at once. Uh, Please come in. Philip followed him into the small parlor where Renaud waved him to a chair. Taking a bottle from the table, Renault poured out two glasses, handing one to Philip. The local vintage, he said, raising his glass. Thanks, Philip sipped the wine appreciatively. He had noticed several bottles in the villa, but so far he and Anne had not tried any. Excellent, he said in answer to Renault's inquiring glance. I'm glad you like it, but I presume you came to see me about uh, something in particular. I trust you find everything to your satisfaction at the villa. Everything's perfect. Philip finished his wine and accepted the second glass. There are, uh, however, just one or two points uh, I'd like to clear up. Certainly, if there's anything you wish to know, please ask. Philip felt himself stiffen slightly. Was there a note of veiled uneasiness in the agent's tone, as if he had been taken by surprise by the remark? My wife is a little worried by the ridiculously low sum you're asking for renting the villa. Renault placed his glass on the small table with an exaggerated care before speaking. I think I should point out that the sum you mentioned was fixed by the owner and has uh, nothing to do with me. I merely carry out her instructions. Apparently, she considers it to be reasonable. He paused significantly. I should say that uh, so far none of the other tenants have complained. So there have been others there. Oh, yes. Uh, When Madame Cuvier's husband died two years ago, she decided not to live there any longer, but to rent the villa for three months each year during the autumn. Do you know where she lives now? I'm afraid not. Uh, I have had no contact with her for over two years. Philip stared at him in surprise. Doesn't that strike you as odd? Not really, monsieur. Before she left, she gave me specific instructions regarding the letting of the villa. All monies I receive are duly paid into her account. Uh, Any arrangements concerning food and maintenance I carry out myself. I see, and the painting hanging in the corridor, is that of her? Why, yes, but uh, why do you ask? Because uh, as we were driving here along the forest road, we saw a woman standing in the middle of the road. I I realise it was dark among the trees and we only saw her for a few moments in the headlights, but she was wearing exactly the same kind of black cloak as that woman in the portrait. But that is impossible, monsieur. You must have been mistaken. Uh, A shadow, perhaps, or the branch of a tree. It is uh, so easy to be deceived, uh, I assure you. Perhaps, but we both saw her. Renaud spread his bony hands and placed them on his knees. Then I can offer no explanation. Philip intended to tell him of his eerie experience during the night, but decided against it, knowing it would only meet with the same response. Yet he felt certain the agent was hiding something, holding back some important information. When he left five minutes later, it was with a feeling of intense dissatisfaction. Anne was walking down the cobbled street towards him. She waved and quickened her step, hurrying up to him. Did you get anything out of him? Not much. Briefly, he told her what he had learned from Renault. When he had finished, she looked frustrated. Do you agree with him that we both imagined what we saw on the road? Either that or this widow Cuvier became eccentric after her husband's death and is living somewhere near the forest. These things sometimes happen, you know. I suppose so, Anne sighed. She fell into step with him as they walked back to the villa. By early evening, the sun had been swallowed up by long bars of black cloud building into towering thunderheads over the mountains. The heat in the air became oppressive without a breath of wind, and the suffocating silence was a dense blanket 
pressing the atmosphere against the ground. There came an occasional rumble of distant thunder, but the storm didn't break until almost midnight. By that time Anne had fallen asleep, but Philip lay in the bed, wide awake, wincing each time the lightning flashed, lighting the room with a harsh, actinic glare. Each stroke was accompanied by a sharp crack, followed almost immediately by the crash of the thunder. At times he thought the entire building shook to its very foundations, and he wondered how Anne could possibly sleep through it all, wishing he could close his eyes and not wake until morning. Maybe, he thought, if he closed the thick drapes across the windows they would blot out much of the lightning. He hauled himself out of bed and padded to the windows. Oddly, there was no rain with the storm. The ground outside was as dry as a bone in the dazzling flash of a forked streak that speared from the clouds towards the peels. In the afterglow of that searing brilliance, he seemed to see everything in stark black and white like a photographic negative burned into his brain. Then pale blurs swarmed into his vision as his eyes watered. But in that single instant, he saw something which sent him reeling back from the windows. The cloaked figure was standing in the middle of the lawn, directly beneath the windows, head thrown back a little, as if watching him. Savagely he fought for self-control, and when a second flash came he forced himself to look again. The grounds were empty, yet he knew she had been there that this time he had not been mistaken. He spun frantically on his heel, jerkily, his heart racing, the blood pounding painfully in his temples. There had been something chill and dead about that figure, and he felt the muscles of his stomach contract sharply as he realised it had not been a thing of flesh and blood. But there was something he had to know, had to see for himself. He opened the bedroom door quietly, although he doubted whether it would make any difference. If Anne could sleep through the resounding din of the storm, and the mere sound of the door opening wouldn't waken her. For an instant he expected to see that ghostly black figure waiting for him in the corridor, but there was nothing. The place was in darkness, but he felt his way along until his outstretched fingers touched the edge of the portrait on the wall. He jerked his hand back and edged away until his shoulders came up against the opposite wall. It was too dark to see anything, but he didn't have to wait long for another vivid flash which lit up everything in stark detail. The table and the chair were there in the picture, exactly as he remembered them from the previous morning, but where the woman had been. There was simply a blank, grey space. Philip was breathing faster than he liked by the time it dawned on him that he wasn't imagining things. The wall behind him bruised his shoulders, but its solidity felt reassuring, as familiar as anything could be in this horrifying place. He knew we ought to wake Anne, get dressed as quickly as possible, and drive away from this haunted villa. Somehow he forced his feet to move, there was only one thought in his mind now. They had to get away in spite of the storm, if only to preserve their own lives and sanity. He fell against the edge of the banister, hitting his side hard, but he scarcely noticed it. Madly he scrambled up the stairs, thrusting open the bedroom door. Anne was still asleep, mercifully unaware of what was happening. Frenziedly he shook her by the shoulder until she mumbled something drowsily and opened her eyes. Wake up, Anne! He realised he was shouting the words, We've got to get out of here. Anne sat up, shaking her head. What's wrong, Philip? she demanded. I've just seen that woman again. Out there, on the lawn. He knew the words were tumbling out in a rush, but he couldn't help it any more than he could stop his hands from trembling. She was staring up the window, watching. Then, go on. Then I went downstairs to take a look at that portrait. She's not in it, Anne. There's just a blank space. Nonsense, you've been having a nightmare. Philip stared down at her in shocked surprise. He'd expected her to find it hard to believe him, but not to be so vehemently dogmatic in her denial as this. She threw back the covers and got out of bed. Now try to calm yourself, Philip. 
I don't doubt that you saw something out there. Uh, I thought I saw a figure the night we arrived, but it, it was only a bush which gave the appearance of moving. This was no bush. He swallowed hard, fought the muscles in his hands until they steadied. I've seen and heard other things in this place. All right, Anne took his arm. Let's go and take another look at his painting. Wordlessly, he allowed her to lead him down the stairs and into the corridor. There, Anne said. It's just as it's always been. Philip stared. Amused eyes looked down at him contemptuously from the picture. But I tell you, I saw... Something seemed to stick in his throat, blocking off the rest of what he intended to say. Really, I don't know what's come over you, Philip. When we were on our way here, it was me who thought there was something wrong with this place, and you blamed it all on my premonitions. But now it's you imagining things. Come back to bed. You'll feel better in the morning. There was a final crash of thunder as they made their way back into the bedroom. The storm was passing over, receding inland. By mid-morning the sun came out, hot and bright, and there was the smell of the vineyards in the air. Leaving Anne pottering around the villa, Philip climbed down the rocky slope to where the massive metal gates stood like grim sentinels on either side of the drive. There was a sound of a tractor somewhere in the distance, and now and again he picked out a peal of laughter where some children were playing while their parents worked among the tall vines. There was a normality about the scene and the sounds, which contrasted starkly with the chaotic thoughts which continued to bubble away inside his mind. Over breakfast, he had tried his hardest to persuade Anne not to remain there any longer, had done his best to convince her that the place was haunted, but she had been adamant. As far as she was concerned, they were going to enjoy their holiday. They had paid for the tenancy, and it was up to him to rid himself of this idiotic obsession about the villa. He abruptly realised that even this strange change in her attitude was weird. There had been a number of occasions in the past when they had sensed some odd atmosphere about a place they were visiting, and in every case, he remembered, it had subsequently come to light that some tragedy or murder had occurred there. Yet now, when the roles were reversed, she had sensed nothing out of the ordinary. He started abruptly at a sudden movement. The man appeared without warning at the foot of the slope, beyond the gates, an old man leaning heavily on a stick. Philip eyed him curiously as he hobbled towards him, pausing just outside the gates, as if reluctant to approach any closer. Monsieur Ransom, the man spoke excellent English with scarcely a trace of accent. Why, yes, surprised Philip walked forward. How do you know my name? My old friend Charles Renault uh, told me some time ago you were renting the villa. Did he tell you anything about it? He must have noticed Philip's blank stare, for he went on quickly. No, I see he didn't. If there's anything you can tell me, I'd certainly be grateful for any information. Philip motioned with his hand. Won't you come inside while we talk? The old man shook his hand vehemently. I'll stay here, if you don't mind. His roomy eyes flicked from side to side as if he were regarding the looming gates as a boundary beyond which he dared not pass. As you wish. You've already heard something here, or seen something, haven't you? The old man peered intently at him, a note of conviction in his voice. Philip nodded slowly, taken aback by the old man's strange perception. I thought so. M maybe you've seen her. The Black Widow. Yes, but according to Monsieur Renault, she's the present owner. The present owner. The old Frenchman repeated the words like a curse and uttered a cackling laugh, his breath wheezing in his throat. Oh, yes, there's no doubt about that. She's the owner, all right. I'm afraid I don't understand. Philip made his face expressionless, inwardly wondering if he was in the presence of a senile peasant. I was the gardener here when Monsieur Cuvier was alive. Madame Cuvier was much younger than him and there was a lot of talk about her and some of the men in the village. I think he knew what was going on, although he never said anything to my knowledge, but he was a very strange man, and I was sure he was planning something. He had that portrait painted of her, you know? Nobody knows who the artist was, except that he was a foreigner, came specially from somewhere in Eastern Europe, they say. But what had that got to do with... 
the old man silenced him with a brusque motion of his stick. Listen, monsieur, and perhaps you may understand that there are some things in this world which we cannot explain rationally. Monsieur Cuvier died very suddenly and mysteriously. There were rumours that he had been poisoned by his wife, and I remember Mademoiselle Mignon saying that just as he died he laughed and pointed a finger at his wife, telling her she would never be free. Philip couldn't keep the little tremor out of his voice. You believe he was murdered? I believe it, monsieur. The old man raised his stick to point down the hill. He was buried yonder, and she stood at the head of the grave, dressed in the same black cloak you see in the portrait. Then she returned to the villa, dismissed all of the servants, and no one ever saw her again. Not alive, that is. Then she is dead. Philip recalled what Renaud had told him, how he had had no contact with Madame Cuvier since her husband's death. That depends what you mean by dead, said the old man enigmatically. He placed both hands on his stick as if needing it to support him. If you want to know what I believe, I and most of the villagers, her husband cursed her just before he died. I've heard rumours of some who've seen her in the churchyard and up on the forest road yonder, but it was no living creature they saw. Her black soul is imprisoned in that painting, and she's doomed to wander until she can find someone else to take her place. Only then will she be free. That froze Philip. He knew that as a rational man he ought not to believe a single word of this superstitious gossip. But in a strange and frightening way, all that the old man had just told him fitted everything together, slotted all that had happened since they had driven here into a coherent but horrifying picture. My wife, he said hoarsely, she's back there in the villa, alone. Without waiting for any reply, he spun on his heel and ran back along the drive, accelerating his pace until his breath was ragged in his throat. Anne! He yelled her name as he reached the door and ran inside. His shout echoed around the walls. Wildly he dashed into the kitchen and then the dining room. Both were empty. And there was a silence all around him, as if a vacuum had suddenly sucked up every sound. Blindly he stumbled along the corridor, staring at the painting, afraid of what he might see. For a moment it looked just as before. Then he peered closer, and a low whimper bubbled from his shaking lips. It was Anne's face that stared at him from beneath the black hood, her eyes wide and filled with a mute pleading that drove all reasoning thought from his mind. He felt as if he had passed beyond all horror. Staggering wildly, he scrambled backward. He didn't know where he was going except away from that ghastly painting and out of the villa. Somehow, his stumbling footsteps carried him in the right direction. He found himself at the front door, his shaking fingers reaching out for the handle. Before he could grasp it, the handle moved. Through the frosted glass he made out the shape which had suddenly materialized outside. The door began to open slowly. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? you tried to How get do they don't come back, Mother? What's the secret? So that was The Black Widow by John Stephen. John Stephen Glasby. I'll tell you something about him first, as is the normal routine. Now remember, if you're not interested in the author, just stop listening now. So, but if you are, let's go. John Stephen Glasby. Born 23rd September 1928, uh, died 5th of June 2011, was a British author born in East Redford, Nottinghamshire, trained as a research chemist and mathematician. 
Glasby's early career saw him balancing his scientific pursuits with a burgeoning passion for writing. His literary journey began in the 1950s and 60s, during which he emerged as a prolific figure in the pulp publishing industry. Despite his scientific background, Glasby's literary ambitions led him to explore a wide array of genres, from speculative fiction and romance to westerns and spy thrillers. His ability to seamlessly transition between genres showcased his versatility as a writer, earning him a dedicated readership across various literary circles. Throughout his career, Glasby's output was characterised by both quantity and quality, under numerous pseudonyms and house names including A.J. Merak, John E. Muller, and Chuck Adams. Glasby penned over 300 novels, 300, listen to that, and short stories. So some of them were short stories, but a lot of them were novels. His imaginative storytelling and attention to detail captivated readers, while his scientific acumen lent authenticity to his speculative works. Notably, Glasby's foray into speculative fiction produced enduring classics such as Project Jove, showcasing his ability to blend scientific concepts with compelling narrative arcs. Additionally, his contribution to genres like westerns, romance and espionage underscored his versatility and adaptability, adaptability, that's the word, as an author, cementing his reputation as a multifaceted literary talent. Despite the commercial constraints of the pulp publishing industry, i.e. it was dying at the time, Glasby's literary legacy, and also considered to be trash, uh, Glasby's literary legacy endured beyond the pro his prolific output. His works continue to be celebrated for their enduring appeal. That's not really true, and cultural significance is very little known now. But he was, um, like, major. So he produced um, 25 speculative fiction novels in, under pseudonyms such as A.J. Marek, J.L. Powers, and the Badger House names Johnny Muller, Carl Siegfried, and Victor Lasalle. Using the Lasalle pseudonym, Glasby wrote Twilight Zone 1954, which, whilst unconnected to the American TV series of the same name, preceded it. It entitled use by five years. He wrote more than 30 Western novels under Chuck Adams uh, and 10 as Tex Bradley. 34 hospital romance novels published under the pseudonym D.K. Jennings. Two crime novels and six desert adventure novels, all using the pseudonym A.J. Merrick. Six James Bond-style spy novels published using the pseudonym Manning K. Robertson. An unknown number possibly as many as a hundred war stories set during World War II and published using many different pseudonyms. What a guy. So I got this one from, um, you know, I kind of haunt secondhand bookshops and eBay as well, and World of Books these days, looking for cheap anthologies of ghost stories. Uh, I, I try not to buy. I do sometimes, if they're a classic, I will spend a little bit more. But generally... Because you find, you think, so these days, if you're going to buy what they churn out these days, are anthologies by Sheridan Lafano, they've got a bit of Sheridan Lafano in them, they've got um, M.R. James in them, got an E.F. Benson in them, you know, and um, they may have some sort of, they may have an Ag odd Agatha Christie, or uh, and they'll put the new ones in, right? But mainly, you get the same ones now. If you go back to these old ones published in the 80s, which are, looking a bit raggedy-paggedy these days. This one's got a whole ton of uh, stories in it. It's called The Giant Book of Ghost Stories, prefaced by Christopher Lee. I'm not sure Christopher Lee ever wrote a ghost story, but he certainly starred in many, and um, or horror stories. So, whereas in the old days, you used to have people like um, Margatina Lasky, Cynthia Asquith, people writing who were kind of experts on the ghost story. Well, Christopher Lee, I'm not sure he was, but uh, not isn't to say I don't like him, because I did very much. Anyway, so we've done a number of these, but a lot of them not come across at all. There's a Guy de Maupassant on the river. There's an Edith Nesbitt, who's a great ghost story writer, even though she wrote a load of fantastic children's, Victorian children's stories as well. Of course, there's Edgar Allan Poe, Lennox Robinson. We did uh, a pair of muddy shoes. Um... A Pamela Sewell Ward 8, I really wanted to do that because it's a hospital ghost story and I've spent many um, working hours in um, hospitals. So, uh, you know, loads and loads and loads, but then little known people. This this kind of got me because it was a black widow and I, I leafed through it and when I'm selecting a story, I'm looking for length. I've got to be honest with you. I'm looking for title that's catchy. I'm looking for length 
So because if nobody is interested in it, there are two things that will draw, there's three things that will draw people, if you're considering doing a YouTube channel like this, uh, draw people to watch your stuff or listen to your stuff if it's a podcast. One is the title. So if you're doing horror stories, it's, you know, if you can have ghost haunted shadow something in it, I, I realise I don't in this one, then um, that'll pull people in. The thumbnail picture will pull people in and the author. So um, I kind of vary between pulp, um, you know, some of them. I mean, I think I did The Shadow on the Moor recently. Uh, pulp writers. And then you've got kind of better known writers, of course, the M.I. James, the E.F. Benson, the H.P. Lovecraft. I do do those. Uh, Robert Aikman, I'm a big fan of Robert Aikman. Uh, kind of Shirley Jackson, Edith Wharton. These are names that will pull people in. But on this occasion, I thought, now I'm going to go through this. It's about the right length. I like the title, The Black Widow. And when I read it, I thought, this is well written. It was nice to narrate. And that is a clue to me. Sometimes people like, you know, look at Henry James. I've said this many times. Um, Henry James is hard to narrate because his sentences just kind of like they have like multiple clauses in them. And by the time you get to the end of it, you've forgotten what the beginning was because there have been so many digressions. Whereas this guy knew how to write it clearly. And, and it goes to prove the old adage if you want to do something, just do lots of it. If you want to build walls or you want to whittle um, uh, kind of wooden fighter planes, uh, just do a lot of it. Uh, you want to uh, raise puppies, do a lot of it, do a lot of it. Um, we'll more on that later, really. But um, if you want to write stories, write a lot of stories, read a lot of stories, write a lot of stories, okay? That's my advice to you. And remember, I've just been to a, a writing event. I, I was saying last week I'd been to the... Um, British Ghost Story Festival, which was a writing rather than a performance event. Um, lots of writers there, including um, Andrew Michael Hurley, who's, I've just finished The Loney again. What a great book that is. Stephen King says um, it was great. Well, he tells a story, Andrew Michael Hurley, he was on the stage and he was saying how he'd written various things and he wrote this one. He thought it was all right. And he thought the Tartarus Press, now, if you haven't come across the Tartarus Press and you want to collect some beautiful hardback books. They re they've done a lot of, um, they've done living authors, obviously, but they've done a lot of classic stuff. Arthur Macken and uh, Aikman and uh, uh, lots, lots, lots. Uh, and M.R. James, of course. Beautiful editions. They're just worth having in if you've got all the stories. If you love books, they are the bomb, as they say. Also, Handheld Press, uh, we, who are going bust. I don't think they've got the titles on sale yet. I say they're going bust. I saw that on Instagram. It may be, it may be a slander or a libel if it's recorded. But um, I do apologise because if they're not going bust, you want to get their stuff. If they are going bust, you want to get their stuff uh, because uh, they produced beautiful, beautiful editions as well. So that's my love of books, um, which is perhaps an illness now, given I, I just took two boxes to the bookshop going, please get rid of these for me. I can bear to get rid of them and don't let me look through the box again because I'll pull them all out. Uh, because I just don't have the space. Anyway, um, it was Umberto Eco who had a massive library, and he said, that, you know, keep on buying books even if you're not going to read them, because they just sit on your shelf, and it, even that's worthwhile. Um, and then, of course, I was reading a thing um, by Slavoj Žižek, the Slovenian philosopher, who was talking about he was Lacan and this idea of the other and he says, you know, we can, by having video collections and book collections, in some sense, we just by having them, the other will read them for us. So we don't even have to read them. I, I, I'm not doing his ideas justice there. But when it made me chuckle that I've digressed somewhat from me, a man, John Glasby. But I was saying about his writing. That's where I can't see. I remembered. Um, and so let's look at this story. What happens? Well, to a couple, we've seen it all before, haven't we? to go to this fairly gothic villa. So it's in France. Um, it's remote. It's in rural France. It's um, in a forest. There's windy hairpin roads. You get the idea the, the roads are not great. Uh, so all, you get that remoteness, classic horror stuff, classic gothic stuff. It's dark gothic. And um, there's, a, there's a, pa a painting in it. Now, we've seen paintings being used. Look at uh, the old portrait by Hume Nesbitt. Uh, done on this channel, but I um, mean, you know, paintings crop up, don't they? I think in um, the entrance by uh, what's his name, Durrell, Gerald Durrell, 
uh, there's a painting in that, isn't there? But, you know, they, they come up, and that's set in France as well. And um, so, so that's what happens. It's, it's the setting. It's the couple. She has premonitions. Um, he doesn't. He's rational. And so we get the idea, and we have the idea of the ghost of the house taking people over. And other stories, Full Circle by John Buchan is a classic one of that, whereby the, the house's ghost changes the personalities of the people in there. This is the same idea, except she is imprisoned into, and it's a really simple story, you know. Um, ghosts are to do with wrongs, aren't they? They can't rest until wrongs are righted. And in this case, it was wrong for her husband. I mean, it's, we're not on anybody's side here. She was adulterous and cheated on her husband, so we're led to believe he, and murdered him. So that's not nice. Uh, and he was uh, malevolent and vicious in his revenge. F my mind jumps to all sorts of stories. We've done so many stories now. And that was the one about the man buried alive. What was it? The Graveyard Rats? No, it wasn't the Graveyard Rats. It was a Silverberg one. I did it just before Christmas. Somebody, uh, he's buried alive anyway. And he was, he was poisoned by his, um, um, adulterous wife uh, with her boyfriend, you know. So this is the theme as, again. And so the Black Widow. Uh, and so she, her punishment is that she is trapped in this picture. He has, interestingly, from Eastern Europe. That is the same idea as M.I. James's. Um, you veil these things. You make them slight. To make them more believable, you make a distance between yourself in time or in place. Make it somewhere exotic. Make it several years ago. Uh, and so this is several years ago from Eastern Europe where we have, you know, Carinthia and Transylvania and all sorts of places uh, that are wild and woolly. They're not really these days, but um, they've still got a certain romance about them. So, yeah, it's done. It may have been a magician. And she's trapped in it. And, of course, his poor innocent wife. So there's no... His wife is innocent. They're just There's just lots of bad stuff happens to people in this story. But it's really simple, isn't it? You know, he goes up, something happens. One of the local locals won't talk about it. Classic stuff, dodgy locals. And then another local spills the beans. Again, classic stuff. That's the inn in Dracula, isn't it? Whereby, you know, he hasn't been told about Dracula's castle, Jonathan Harker. But the woman presses the crucifix on him. Oh, come and take this, son. Take this crucifix, son. Oh, she's from Liverpool. Take the crucifix. It'll do you good, Jonathan. Like a bowl of lobscouse. Anyway, so, yeah, that's it. That's it. And the end, the door opened. So classic stuff. This guy was a master of his art. Pulp. Pulp short stories. And I think he, he does it really well. I think that, you know, we've seen the thunderstorm before. We've, we've heard the person in the house before. We've seen the, the dark woman. There's the mistress in black, for example. Um. Is that Rosemary Timperley? Um, well, if we forget me, God, this is all buzzer on my head, and, uh, and and you know we've seen it all before, but you've just got to recombine it. It's like music. There's only so many notes, there's only so many chord progressions and things like that. But you just got to recombine it, and you get something. It's like I want something that's familiar, but new, and that's everything they're looking for. That's the whole of Hollywood. That's every literary agent in the world. I want something that's familiar but new. And it seemed to me that this is a much underrated story. It is it's a beautifully, in my opinion, beautifully put together story. It is not it's not plumbing the psychological depths of the human soul. It's not literary fiction, you know? But it it doesn't say anything uh, profound about our existential crisis. But it it's a good story. It worked, I thought. Uh, you felt, I felt as I was reading it, he created the villa for me, it was right there, and um, he worked on the, this mysterious figure. Of course, the other thing about a monster or a ghost, if you're going to have one, is, uh, James says this, don't be too blatant about it. Just hint, hint, hint. There she is. She just stands there. She says nout. She just stands and looks at you, or stares at you ma malignantly. Um, so... Anyway, I like that story. I liked it better than some of the other ones we've done recently that I've been guided to. Um, the Shadow and the Moor went quite well, but I, li I preferred this one. I did uh, the Taru Ushti by Nigel Neal, great writer. Different kind of story completely. 
I like that one, but I preferred this one, even though um, old John um, Glasby doesn't have the same cachet as uh, Nigel Neal, rightly so. Nigel Neal deserves a quater mass. He deserves it for that, as, you know, alone. Um, but a very accomplished man. But in his way, because, you know, Nigel Neal was a working writer. That was his job. He was there to entertain people. None of your fancy air flute. I was, um, I don't haunt, but I sometimes follow some writerly threads. And um, honestly, some writers, do you know, they're so entitled and they're so up themselves. And uh, they get a, the first book published and it sells, you know, 500 copies. And yet they think they're God's gift to the world and they're really saying something. I'm not saying everybody. Um, Andrew Michael Hurley, great book. Not him. He sold a lot more than that. He won lots of awards, rightly so. Stephen King, exactly, same thing. But I'm not saying that. I'm saying, you know, and they're talking about AI art because Tor Books, apparently, which is science fiction publishers, um, have put out uh, some covers with um, AI art on. And these guys are like, I will not effing, and they use the F-bomb, uh, have any AI art on my books. And they're like, who do you think you are, man? You're not Shakespeare. You're not even Somerset Maugham, you know. Um, you're just like some... Anyway, that, you know, I like to moan. So uh, back to real life. That was a good story, really. Um, I'll, there'll be more coming. I feel a more literary story coming. I feel like a Henry James. I actually feel like a Henry James is coming. Um, I hear it coming from afar. And uh, so that, so otherwise, I haven't been well. I haven't been recording for ages because I had a terrible cold and my tinnitus was screaming at me and I lost my voice and it was awful, 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 awful. But I managed to do uh, a couple of days ago in Tarushti. So I, I sometimes record a bunch close together if I'm in the mood. I did a detect, I'm doing a detective channel as well. I've been trialing some, they sound like I'm, ooh, aren't you clever? You've been trialing, who do you think you are, Tony Walker? But um, um, I've been kind of contracting, because I pay them, um, authors to do the hard-boiled stuff, because we talk about this accent thing. And um, I feel an American voice does an American story, certain American stories and certain genres. You have to have an American voice, like a Western. How could you do that in a Sunderland accent, Sunderland UK accent? You can't do it, you know. You need an American voice for that, uh, a Western voice for that. Um, so there's some New York stories. You just have to have that voice, and I think the hardball detective, you need an American voice. So, But I've done a few of those, but I've done – I did an American one set in New York, but I didn't – I thought I could get away with it doing it in my own accent. So that was the um, – I really enjoyed that, uh, the Riddle of the Yellow, Yellow Canary. If you fancy that, hop over to my classic detective stories channel. Uh, and that's coming out on Saturday next. Um, what else to say? I've been busy. I've been doing some TikToky stuff as well. Um, but that's a different experiment. That's a different kind of thing. That's kind of true schlock, you know, true true ghost stories, uh, fireside camp stories again, you know. But anyway, that's by the by. Don't even go there. If, you, if you're literally, don't even go there. Um, I'm, I'm a, I, I should do I have done it under a pseudonym. So uh, you'll never find it. Um, otherwise, yeah, Sheila's out tonight. It's her friend Carol's birthday, so I was going to give her a lift, but I've got my book club at nine o'clock, and um, I'll probably have a beer, to be fair, um, so I don't really want to drive. Anyway, I said just get a taxi. Life goes on, you know, we're... we're um, and this is a funny thing, and I don't want to bring a downer to it, but but it hasn't really been a downer, so... My poor old mum passed away, and we're clearing the house, one of the things you have to do. And it's, man, she's filled, I don't think she's threw anything away since 2008, including any tins of food. Uh, and so various members of the family, my two daughters and my brother and nephews, have been in the house, uh, kind of, and me as well, trying to sort things out. And what I was going to say, to how, how these things can turn up, you know, every cloud has a silver lining, um, it's kind of, we've all been, it's been like a family event, um, you know, and a way of remembering her as well and uh, talking to her. I talk to her and I'm doing some of the stuff. Go, oh, mother, what, what have you kept this for? 
And uh, Jeremy, my brother, said um, how we used to joke 20 years ago, we'd sit and look at her things and go, well, we're getting rid of that, we're getting rid of that, you know, and of course 20 years is a long time and you're like, it's a joke at the time and now it's for real. So, um, but the the positive side has been that we've, we've funnily enough, all grown a lot closer. So, you know, and she would have loved that, the fact that her family are... Um, laughing and joking and, and just back like we were. Because you grow up, you grow apart. And, uh, but it's been very, very nice. The other thing I've been doing is mainly walking the dogs. And um, I've walked them eight and a half miles today. And I had to ban them when I was recording before because they were carrying on wrestling. You may hear some of them in the story, some from afar. Earlier on, Sheila, when I was doing it, was doing her singing bowls. You might hear that, ooh, in the background, like, oh, for goodness sake. There's an aeroplane goes over, the man in the scrapyard starts doing things. So I'll try and gate those out, but you may have come across it. And um, so the dogs, I'm like, I've been out, I've walked you for three and a half hours in two different sessions today. And we've walked eight and a half miles, and you're still full of energy. We've walked them too far. We've turned them into athletes. They're athletes. They they can they can do it all in their stride and then do it all again now, um, but now because I've put the heater on so it's warmed up a little bit so they're they're um, I'm in my attic. Oh, and another thing I thought if you're interested in this at all, um, it, it, you may have heard the turning of pages in that story as well. So my setup is this: um, I noticed when I was I had the book, it's a big heavy book, and I was resting it, and I, my my mouth was turned away from the microphone. And that was making the volume go down. This this isn't good. So then, so for most of the story, I was holding the book up above the mic so I could talk straight into the mic. My pop screen moved down. That's why I heard the pop. I was doing that. And my hands were getting really tired. And I thought, there has to be a clever way to do this. And I thought, you know what? Let's get a pop screen just uh, because I insulted it and moved away. Um, Let's get like a book stand. So there are such things, mainly for tablets, and I don't want that, um, but for proper books. Because I, I often read from a proper book, but I need page clips as well to keep the pages open because I'm going to be reading, 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 then stop, take the page clip, turn it over, two pages, stop. And that's not to say, you know, anyway, by the by. So I ordered that off, off Tinternet because um, you wouldn't get them locally. So there we are, uh, and that is all my stories. I hope you're all well. Do I have a call to action? They always said you should have a call to action. Um, be happy. That's my call to action. Hope you're all all right. Hope you're, if you're ill, hope you're getting better. If you're lonely, hope uh, my chat has uh, helped you not be as lonely because we're pals, you and me. And... Um, and all the people who don't like any of this stuff. Oh, somebody said to me, just leave the haters alone, Tony. Just leave them alone. Yeah, yeah, but they, they, they wind me up. They rile me. They, they, they invade my dreams. All the people who say lovely things, I'm like, oh, that's nice. And they want me, oh, no, no, no. But they're totally right. Leave them alone. Let it be. Let it be. Let it go. So on that note, I'm going to let it go. Hope you're all well, honestly. Um, more coming soon.
Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come dies, back. Isn't that so? 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 Isn't that so?